You've heard their voices as the soundtrack to local sports for years. Now join the two Bold City natives in their in-depth look at the Jacksonville sports landscape. It's Manzi and Miller on sports. Manzi and Miller on sports. We are into the month of October. It is the 2nd of October, and we have a big-time show for you today. We have a guest coming up, Michael Hugh, the author, the first GM of the Jacksonville Jaguars, as well as the former commissioner of the UFL, uh, NFL agent. Uh, he is a guy who just came out with a book, has came out at the end of August. Richard and I went to his book signing at the Barnes & Noble Town Center a little over a month ago. Fascinating guy, and we had him on for, you know, talked to him for about 25 minutes or so, and uh, what, a, what, a, what a conversation it was. He is a brilliant, fascinating individual, and really, if he decided to come on the podcast every week, I, I, I would be fine. Like, oh, here we go. Yeah. Let's see what story about Tom Coughlin or Wayne Weaver, but his book is incredible. I'll definitely read it again and probably go back, highlight stuff. He's just a really nice person. Spoke to my, my Rotary Club. Really fun. I I did, and you were there because I asked the Tom Coughlin, Mark Burnell flip-flop yes, yeah. one. So he told – I was like, oh, uh, please, Michael, if you could share that. And, and it killed. So then he's like, you got to travel with me. Like just <laughs> – I'll, I'll be in the audience and be like, now, Michael, what about Andre Risen? Yeah, so, yeah, set him up. Yeah. I mean, the book is worth it alone just for the, the Jaguars-related stories, but it's, it's a great one. We recommend it. We get a little more in-depth into it in this interview coming up as well. But let's start off with a separate topic here. This is recent. This is somewhat newsworthy, but it, we talked about 1010XL and some of the changes that have taken place over the last couple of months here on this program uh, quite a bit as of late, Richard. And they've made another change, brought in a big name. Now it's uh, somebody that was already kind of familiar to the area, right? And and as they try to continue to supplement Midday Chalk, which has obviously been a show that is just completely turned over in the last three months or so, two months really. Yeah, and and when we talked about it, it was right when T. Wig left, and we were thinking James Coleman seems like the the easy answer solution if you want to throw him in there, and they go with Leon Searcy, former Jaguars offensive lineman, one of the bookends like Tony Baselli. Really, if you grew up here in the mid to late 90s, even early 2000s, you, you know the name pretty the well. synonymous. Yeah, and, and then on social media, he's, he's a huge Miami Hurricanes fan. He's been in two ESPN 30 for 30s. He's, he's got a wealth of knowledge, and he's got a commanding voice on radio, and he works well with Rick Ballou. And with that, I think it was last week, he kind of had his like one- or two-day period audition Mm -hmm. if you will, but you could tell that it, it was just better chemistry and you give it that third person so it's not just Baloo and Lauren Rue, which seemed a little forced. And now with Leon Searcy, you know, for example, on Monday after the Jags win, he starts breaking down like what Sam Darnold looked like, why Blake Bortles was better than the previous week against the Titans, what the backfield was like, how the team's going to adjust with no Leonard Fournette. I mean, he was getting into some really good stuff, and it felt more like a Jaguars all-access show or not quite as Baselli Pete Prisco, but it had that knowledge and, and fun to it, whereas before it was missing that because there was no T-Wig. 
Well, we know that based off of this market, right? It's a football first market and you have to be able to win the football demographic. You could sit there and BS about a baseball team or a basketball team and you're not going to lose ample listeners because not enough people around here are experts in any of that to sit there and be able to call you on it. But if you're not an expert in the local NFL team and at least a pseudo expert in the local college teams, you're going to get exposed. And it's a situation in which Leon Searcy comes in and he's obviously an expert in the local NFL team, having played on it, still very much involved in it, understands the game. And it sounds like he's really good at taking that understanding and then dictating it, which not everybody is good at. And then also he's got a unique perspective being a Miami fan when there aren't really, you know, it's it's a station full of Gators, there's some Florida State people, and then that's kind of it. And bringing in that Miami perspective, it's good for, because it's foil for blue, which works, but it's different foil for blue. And, And normally I wouldn't say that you need two alpha personalities, but I think Rick Ballou honestly works best with a, a, another alpha type personality kind of pushing him because when, when he gets pushed, he pushes back and then there's, there's a, a good give and take there and, and it brings out the best perhaps in both sides. And it seems like this could be something along those lines that, that ends up working out best that way. Yeah. And, and I think you're right in that alpha personality but it can't be somebody who wants to be the driver of the show. No, no. You have to let Baloo steer it. Yes. But you need to be able to maybe back backseat drive a little bit, chirp. Yeah, yeah. But, but in saying, like, when it was Baloo and Frangie, that's one of the reasons that didn't work out. Look at Dempsey and Frangie. Mm-hmm. That didn't work out. You had two drivers trying to drive the same 18-wheeler. And, and Midday Chalk was kind of – it had multiple drivers coming yes. from different angles there for a while, which made it clunky at times. Yeah, and – that was Coward and Baloo, where it just it didn't have that natural feel to it. But the alpha personality that's dead on. Now, for the time being, he's doing Monday through Friday from about noon until about 1, one twenty. So he's doing four or five segments of, of radio every day. I'm assuming it's because he's got another day job, like a number of these people do. T-Wig, for example, he mm-hmm. was doing the same. And... I like it. So far, it's it's given me a reason to actually tune in, whereas before, I just kind of listened because it was more of, well, Jaguars today is over, and I'll I'll just leave it there. I, I won't change to, like, NFL Network. And then I think also, it can't go without saying that, yeah, yeah the former player aspect helps quite a bit. Really, you don't see that on any of the shows. Mm-hmm. It just isn't there. It's everybody's a broadcaster, but I get the sense of he's somebody that could watch a game or go back and watch it, and we come from that broadcaster preparation mold of, you know, I'm not going to go on and talk about the Kansas City Chiefs if I didn't stay up last night and watch the entire game right. or see the first three games Kansas City played, and that's what I did with the Titans. I'd go back and watch that, and you get that sense from Leon Searcy where, oh, here's the wheel route guy just didn't cut into it quick enough anything like that you're going oh wow like this is really impressive it's stuff that you can share with your friends sound really smart and I think that's why I'd say 50% or more people listen to sports talk so they can banter with their friends maybe win a little bit more of the argument but also when they watch one of the upcoming matchups they can say hey 
Like, why aren't the Jaguars doing what they did? It, it's missing. The Jets' game plan is not the same. You want to be able to learn something, so you sound intelligent. Yeah, yeah. I, I like the entertainment factor, but I, I want to learn more than anything. It's why I tune in more often than not in a podcast instead of, of local radio. Or if I decide I want to learn something, I'll say, you know what? I'm going to go to D.C., San Fran, maybe a d- different NFL market to see what they're talking about. Yeah, it's all about perspective, and then it feels like Jacksonville is currently kind of undergoing a bit of a transition in how it wants to handle this thing. But, hey, it's a, it's a living, breathing creature. Sports talk radio, it's constantly evolving, and, and they're evolving along with it. What, what, what do you say we, well, first of all, we'll keep an eye and see how that marriage works out. I'm sure we'll have some thoughts coming up. Well, well and, and Scott, I, I texted you yesterday when we were discussing this of, you know, easy topic, essentially. Yeah, yeah. We've been on 1010, why not more? But you're having a tackle protect Lauren Rue. Yeah. I mean, it really turned a, into that first six weeks. It's an accurate analogy. Oh, I mean, a week or two ago, she was getting crushed on Twitter. She was having to defend herself. I understand where some of the frustration by listeners is coming from. Too harsh, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. But there were times where she'd bring stuff up, and I'd go, uh, this is, you're going to get some blowback. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like with Searcy, if she's not confident in an opinion, and it's got to be difficult. You're being a full-time female host. Nobody else has done that in this market. That seriously, she can just go, well, hey, Leon, you know, what was it like when you dealt with Michael Irvin? Yeah. Something like that. It can be something easy and almost a, uh, a, safe, a safe spot because it, it makes for better synergy on the show. And, and you kind of give her a little time to catch her breath. All that's good stuff, Richard. I look forward to following it along over the course of the next couple of months. I mean, this is doesn't seem like something that's going to change anytime soon, but we'll keep following that kind of uh, update, that growth, that evolution of Sports Talk Radio here in town. But what do you say we get to our guest, the author, Michael Hugh? Scott Manzi, Richard Miller, now joined by Michael Hugh author of Behind the Line of Scrimmage, Inside the Front Office of the NFL. Oh, both Richard and I had the opportunity to go out to Barnes & Noble recently when his book came out and uh, take part in the question and answer. It was uh, so much fun that we, we figured we had to continue this, Richard, and, and get Michael on, and he's so gracious to join us today. Thanks for joining us here, Michael, and we're, we're excited to talk to you. Hey, it's great to be on with you guys. Thank you for having me. First I'm always curious, when it comes to, to writing a book, what, what, what prompts you to want to take life experiences and put pen to paper, if you will? Well, for me, I think it was the culmination of a career of being the first in a lot of the positions that I was in. And it was just a strong desire on my point to share my experiences and in some ways I think perhaps provide a blueprint for others in terms of having lofty goals in life and navigating through that rubric of all of the obstacles and challenges that you're going to face no matter what background you're from and you know trying to find a way to get to wherever your focus is keeping your moral compass and 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 standing by some guiding principles and I think I had a unique perspective in the professional sports industry and I thought by writing the book I could share that with others. Did you have a favorite part Michael of, of writing this book? Well, you know, in many ways, it's kind of therapeutic. You, you kind of look back and, you, and you, you realize the breadth of your career and the amount of people that you've been 
connected with and worked with and, and the scope of everything that's going on in your career. So the volume of it, I think, once you put pencil to paper and you kind of really see how much involved you were in the process and many different uh, aspects of which I worked in the industry, uh, I think there's some uh, closure, I think, in many ways to to uh, to the person who does that, goes through that journey. Michael, there's a significant portion of this book that takes, or at least a, a solid portion of this book that takes place in Jacksonville due to your time here as the, the general manager, starting with the team when it was an expansion team and then kind of moving into the the successful period. But it, it was more than just the, the football-related aspects of it. It was a lot of the stories about moving here, moving to Marsh Landing, uh, you know, going out in the, the Riverside area and, and experiencing some some racial prejudice, uh, certainly at times. Do you, you're still in the area. Do, do you find that things have changed, perhaps in a positive manner at all, from, from the mid-'90s when, when a lot of this in the book was written to, to now in Jacksonville? Well, I think there's no question that we've seen progress, and, and communication always sort of helps with that. A lot of patterns remain the same. You know, we, particularly as young uh, black families and African-Americans, oftentimes don't avail ourselves to the same social settings and, and cultural activities that non-minorities do. So even today in Ponte Vedra, 90% of the time when my wife and I go out to dinner, we might be the only black couple in that restaurant. And that hasn't changed since the 90s. But I think the scope of people and the breadth of it, if you're a minority person, you're going to interact with racism on a regular basis. I mean, I think there's there's no misnomer that that doesn't exist in society. It doesn't mean that you can't live a comfortable life. It doesn't mean that there are tons and tons of people out there that you're going to exchange very positive relationships with. But there's always the other side of that, too, because of cultural blockage, because of ignorance, because of lack of exposure, because of the way things are portrayed in the media that are always going to have an impact on your life. Michael, you, you wrote in the book how your son uh, drew a picture and you were in the other building. Can you share that a little bit and how important family is for you? Well, it is. You know, when you're aspiring to be successful in life, you you make your career first. You may say your family, your faith, or other things are first, but the expectations are on your career. It's where you're going to be from 5 in the morning till 10 at night. And so that's what's going to drive you. And, and, and at times, you can get that twisted. You can get and perhaps lose your focus at times because you keep convincing yourself that every hour you put in at the office is an hour for your family. But in reality, it's an hour at the office. It's an hour away from your family. And I think little things, vignettes like my son drawing a picture that showed me not living at home but living at the office even as a kindergartner, is a reminder that you have a commitment to family, too. And that balance between work and family is always a delicate tightrope that anyone walks. And there's times where you have to build a moral compass for yourself that just sort of says, where am I going to draw that line? And I think no matter how important your job is, your first job is to be a husband and a father to your children. And, and I think if you lose sight of that, if you – if you veer off that course too far, then you get lost in that journey professionally as well. I want, I want to get back to a little bit about the, the Jaguars-related stuff here. Uh, and we are a, kind of a Jacksonville-based podcast that certainly focuses on, on that kind of stuff. And, and I kind of want to know, you told some great stories at the Q&A uh, about the, the, when you were 
you know, trading for Brunel first almost in, in theory, and then it actually went through after that. Um, but as I want to know about Tom Coughlin. Everybody talks about him and what he has brought to this franchise since he came back. What is it about Tom Coughlin from your perspective that makes him such a unique leader? Well, he's an organized person. He's a disciplined person. You know, when you get in the business of coaching, it's teaching. That's the primary responsibility of a coach is to teach. And the only people that really go into teaching are people that enjoy the individuals that they're teaching. And I think one of the greatest things about Tom was that the whole year before we had the team, he came in in 94 and we started in 95, I spent almost every day with him 12, 15, 16 hours a day. And so both of our wives were back where we had our homes, and we were just both here every day, um, you know, spending time together 16 hours a day. So I really got to know him. And what was interesting is that there's a side to Tom that so many people don't see. And he's a disciplinarian. He's a tactician. Everything has to be a certain way with him. But he cares so much about these players, he just would never let them know it. In fact, every player that got cut for the 10 years that I was with the team got cut by me in my office. Tom would never cut them. He wouldn't directly cut them because he didn't want to have to sit there and tell them their dreams were over. Most of the time, the players would come in and say, yeah, thanks, Mr. Hugo, I appreciate it. And the coach couldn't even come over here and say goodbye. So they're thinking he doesn't even care about them. But the reality is he cared so much about them. I would go on recruiting trips to inner city black communities in Mississippi, Alcorn State, and we'd be recruiting these kids like McNair and other kids. And Tom would stop, go over to a field, and there'd be a bunch of little black kids running around out there. He'd stop, play catch with them, and have conversations about, you know, following their dreams and, and having commitment. And so that was the side that I saw at the time. He gave all of the coaches $2,500 uh, um, savings bonds for their kids, you know, for, for, for every coach. And he would do that for every year. And there were things he never wanted people to know. And so I think the thing that really made him such a great coach and individual is that his heart was so much bigger than everybody ever saw. Michael, do you still talk football or, or keep in touch with Coughlin? I do, I do. And, uh, you know, once in football, always in football. I want to know about what you think about Shad Khan and what he has done perhaps for the NFL as a fellow minority, kind of breaking through a glass ceiling, if you will, as becoming a minority owner in the league. Well, certainly his presence means something. I think what gets diluted at times when you say minority is the fact that he's worth about $10 billion. So somehow people tend to overlook that a little bit and has a 250-foot yacht that's off and down the landing. But he came from very humble beginnings to come from Pakistan and to be here. was, you know, obviously a very brilliant man. He's got tremendous business savvy. I think the thing that makes him such an incredible owner is that he's a big vision guy. He knows what he knows. He knows what he doesn't know. And I think when you have ownership in a team in the NFL, that's really the ingredient for success, uh, that the owner understand what role he can play in supporting the organization and I think that's what what Chad has brought to uh, to Jacksonville and certainly bought back with the team at that element as well. Michael, what was Wayne Weaver like? He, he's kind of disappeared since the sale of the team and everything with the Jaguars, but uh, he and Dolores Bar Weaver are still active in the community. Do you keep in touch with him? Yeah, periodically. You know, he had uh, uh, been a little illness and hadn't been playing as much golf, and I would periodically see him over at TPC. 
Um, but I think, you know, again, philanthropic-wise, there will probably never be a family that will come to Jacksonville that will do more than the Weavers have done. Uh, and, and, and we've all benefited, whether you've been a sports fan or not, by having the Weavers in Jacksonville. Um, but I think that there's a lure at times when you come into a professional franchise as an owner to feel a sense of responsibility to speak authoritatively about um, what's going on with the football team, managing the football team. And I think in the first sort of 10 years, because Wayne left all of those decisions to Tom and myself, he didn't have to sort of play that role. And when I left and then a year later Tom left, it really thrust Wayne into a role that, you know, really for the prior 10 years he had not been exercised on a regular basis. So it kind of thrust him in, even though 10 years in, to a new role as an owner. And that meant picking a GM, picking a coach. And he just really, I don't think, had a lot of experience firsthand. Uh, so you end up relying on other people or relying on your gut. But those are difficult things to do in this industry because it's really vetted by just an awful lot of experience. And, and that's what's the most guiding principle. So maybe there was a learning curve after that period of time. And I think the team struggled a bit during that during that period. What about the expansion process and bringing the Jacksonville Jaguars to town as a as a real NFL team? What about that process might be kind of overlooked by just the the casual fan that sees a new team with a bunch of new players? Well, just how much of a long shot it was. I mean, there were so much, so many other bigger cities that were competing for that opportunity. And Jacksonville really wasn't on anyone's horizon at the league office. I mean, they already had two teams in the state of Florida. And so it wasn't going to necessarily help the television market by bringing in Jacksonville. But I think the fact that this sort of last push of selling 10,000 club seats in 10 days and generating a huge gate uh, that, that, that was shared among all 32 clubs really made Jacksonville not only a good fit location, but financially as well, much to the surprise. And Wayne and David Selden and, and Tom Petway and the whole group of ownership that was part of this really kind of pulled off a miracle. Michael, why did you and your, your family decide to, to make your home and stay here in Jacksonville or out in Ponte Vedra? Well, you know, I remember the first day that I, I decided to take the job here. I, I put this in the book. I told my wife that we were moving to Jacksonville. She said, where is Jacksonville? You know, and the first moment we got out of the plane, you know, she just had her hair curled and we walked out of the airplane and immediately it fell flat with the humidity. And we're driving by the Bay Street and we see this beautiful building. And I said, look, honey, there's a beautiful building. He said, oh, that's actually a prison. So it was an inauspicious start, but uh, it grew on us in a way that uh, we never really wanted to leave. And we raised all three kids here. I spent four years working in New York at the UFL, the United Football League, but stayed here and commuted. And uh, even though Monday through Thursday I would be in New York and come back on the weekends, did that for four years. And that's really the sort of love affair that we've had, you know, with this area. You know, it's just, it's not broke, so we don't try to fix it. And it's been, you know, just really a great place for us. Richard and I are both Jacksonville natives. We've, we've grown up in this city. We've seen how this city has grown as well, especially in the last maybe five to ten years. It feels like things have really taken a sharp turn upward and, and maybe right at, be right at the precipice of exploding. Where, where do you see the growth in this city and, and where it could potentially 
become big time like it keeps threatening to be? Well, look, we've already had a Super Bowl. We have an NFL team here that's, that's you know, uh, danced on the door of getting to the Super Bowl. Uh, we have an owner here in Shad Khan who's an international figure now trying to buy Wembley Stadium. So all of those things have been huge pluses for this city. And incrementally, it sort of raises the profile not only from an international standpoint, but locally in terms of what people think we can do, building the amphitheater, drawing more national music talent here, and just giving ourselves the sense that we have a waterfront opportunity that we can develop downtown. And, and I think those kinds of things have given us really insight that we are a first-class city and more and more people are becoming aware of it. So I think that mission has to start internally with the people that live here. And I think 15, 20 years ago, I'm not sure people really believed that was the way that you could define Jacksonville. And I think today that mindset of who we are and what we're capable of has changed dramatically in the sense that we're as good as any city in the country, and we deserve all of the same recognition that other major cities have as well. Michael, I'm sure you saw the talk. The Jaguars had three home games in September, and for some of those with the heat, humidity, you know, at times on the field, the temperature 117. Was there ever talk when you were with the Jaguars of – you know, oh, attendance isn't that great for this game, or w would you guys notice that in the front office? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, especially not coming from that environment, um, you know, the heat was stifling. Our first year of training camp, we, we even decided to have it at Stevens Point, Wisconsin, for fear that we couldn't run an effective training camp in this heat. Uh, that backfired because it ended up being the hottest temperature in 30 years in Stevens Point, Wisconsin. But I think the reality is it is a challenge. Um, it certainly at times can be an advantage to other teams that come in here. But I do think that there's a, you know, when we have a game like last week and the weather's actually great, it's a, it's an anomaly that we really recognize and, and wrestle with. And so it, it's a part of living in Florida. And, uh, you know, I don't think it's as much of a negative. But there's no question there are some people who sort of start their home game package in October. What similarities perhaps do you see between those late 90s teams, Jaguars teams, and this version of the Jaguars? Well, I think the structure is back in place like it was when Tom and I were here. And I think, you know, I talk often about what's the special sauce that makes one team win and another team not be successful in the NFL. And so often we tend to think that it's about player and personnel selection. And it's really about the culture, the chemistry, and the leadership of that team. And so that sort of starts with coaching and the support that comes from ownership. And when you do those things right, it filters down to the players so that there's an element of respect, there's an element of discipline, there's an element of leadership, and then there's a buy-in to whatever that mission is. And if you mismanage what you're paying the players so that they feel disrespected, if you hold players out for extended periods of time, all of those things create backlashes that erode the chemistry on the team, and you just don't build a successful organization. Some organizations think, if I pay this player $60 million, he's going to give me everything I've got because I paid him $60 million. The reality is, whether you pay him $60 million or $6 million, if he doesn't feel respected, he's not going to perform for you. So, a lot of teams suffer from the fact that they think the respect is built into the paycheck. And in normal business, employees who just go work the job, that's sort of how it's implied. 
But it's not that way in professional sports, and particularly in the NFL. And so teams that recognize that and are on the front end of that and have all those elements in place are the ones that are going to be successful no matter who they draft or no matter who the players are. Did, did you have a favorite player that you worked with with the Jaguars or that you really enjoyed watching when you were with the team? Well, it was hard not to like Baselli. I mean, he came in at the you know behemoth size that he was. And the first day we had the rookies in, you know, we ran 55-yard gassers across the, the width of the field. And, you know, we had the skilled players, running backs, receivers. And I think Baselli won every sprint at 325 pounds. So it was it was like he was a freak of nature in the sense that, you know, he had this great athletic talent. He partially negotiated his own rookie deal with me directly. Uh, all ten players came in and signed on mass. It was a first in the history of the NFL. That was led by Tony. Um, so, you know, he was just one of a lifetime type of players, I think, that, um, you know, can you build a championship team around in addition to just having the sheer toughness. Um, that was unrivaled in uh, in the in the National Football League. Your book it feels poignant for this time period, especially with the um, maybe most racially charged time period that we've been in since the Civil Rights Movement. Is, is that what prompted you to write it right now? Well, it is because I'm such an advocate for change. You know, I've been fortunate that I've been in both walks of life. I've been accepted in the black community and in the white community. And from that vantage point, you can see common ground, but it's really hard when you're entrenched on one side. And I think even in my career, I worked for the Players Association, and then I worked for the owners. I worked as an agent. I worked with an ownership group. So, you know, I've been able to sit on perches in many different ways and see where that thread of common goal and common ground is. And that was one of my hopes in this book. One, that I have to explain to people what some of the issues are, because there's unconscious bias and there's conscious bias and outright bigotry. But the reality is, in many instances, I think people would be surprised to know because they don't think of it that way. Like my kids went through school in Jacksonville, first from um, Jacksonville Country Day School and then to Episcopal. So we put them in private school all the way through um, high school. And in the 12 years of learning, um, my my kids had one African-American teacher. So I would imagine that if you said to a, 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 a white family in Jacksonville, if you paid to send your kids to private school for 12 years, and in those 12 years they had one white teacher, how would you feel about that? And so there's just things that we don't recognize and see so when we fight for more diverse faculty in our school systems and providing role models, and that's just one example. And so for me, I thought the book would create a healthy discussion that might better folks' understanding about issues and promote a more healthy dialogue about race. Michael, when you go on uh, speaking engagements, tours, uh, bookstores, is is that the primary question you get asked about the, the racial tension, Colin Kaepernick, the kneeling, because that's something you, you start the book off with. Yeah, I start off because it's a poignant part of it. You know, it really, it, it, it's a part that I think forces you and it kind of grabs you right away in the book and so forth, maybe even makes you a little uncomfortable. And then it gives you a chance to get into the book and see kind of the things I went through. And, you know, it's not angry black man says what's wrong with the country. No, it's someone who's had the benefit of being successful in almost every position I was hired because I was black. And I say that in the book, and that's not a negative 
in the role that I was able to play because you don't stay in those positions if you're not good at what you do. But the reality is it was diversity that got me into those positions. And so for me, I want to send messages to young African-American kids, get engaged in your school, not just in sports. Get involved in the band. Get involved in student government. Get yourself engaged. Network. Use the benefits that are there so that you can promote yourself in a career. And I think in some ways the things that I did in my career can be a blueprint for other people to follow. Is there a is there another book that you you plan on writing anytime soon? I, <laughs> I mean, know. I know I'm sorry, I know you just finished the first one, but yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I think I you know, really there were sort of two books that I wrote uh, initially, and this was sort of the second one. The, the first was a more sort of football themed one, but there's other stories about relationships that I've had with people and 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 how I think it can impact our views and and and, and it helps build a way of I think you know making us better as individuals and, and, you know, just really focused on sort of that give back aspect of my life. And I'd really like to sort of stay channeled in that, in that genre. It's fascinating, Michael, because you have all these names in the book, Snoop Dogg, Pac-Man Jones, all these names we've known with the Jaguars for the last 25 years. Have you ever met anyone and just, you get completely starstruck? Well, you know, um, I was at, um, Obama's inauguration, the first one, and one of our owners um, uh, was very close with um, the Speaker of the House at the time, so we were invited to sit on the stage. We sat right really the greatness of the chief of staff, uh, my wife and I, for the inauguration. So that was sort of a special thing. And right after he's been elected president, um, he was walking down the chamber uh, past the um, Speaker of the House's office into was going to have lunch with all the Congress people and senators, and you know he immediately become president. So now the third Secret Service are walking with him, and he got just to the door, and someone had asked if he had seen me, and he stopped the whole procession and called my name out and said, "Michael, Michael," and he just wanted to congratulate me on becoming commissioner of the UFL. My wife is watching me walk out there, like, "What the hell are you doing?" You know, and and so. I think, you know, he was a – forget what you think of his politics. He was just a transformational person because for an African-American person to become president of the United States, to win the Nobel Peace Prize, those were it's, – it's sort of like meeting Mandela. So I think particularly as an African-American, irrespective of what your political views are, it was just an amazing thing to get to meet him and then, and then you know, meet him several other times. And, and uh, so I think that was probably and – I, and I think I've met every sort of celebrity, if you will, uh, in the industry, but but uh, I think uh, the president was a little different. Uh, the book is behind the line of scrimmage inside the front office of the NFL. He's the first GM of the Jacksonville Jaguars, and he has a story that is just fascinating of his career, uh, both in front offices of the NFL, the UFL, uh, you know, living here in Jacksonville for a while, and and working the way up through the biz, and and the racial. Uh, tensions and moments and and everything that goes along with it. Michael, thank you so much for the time. We really enjoyed the book. We enjoyed getting to meet you briefly at Barnes & Noble recently, and and we look forward to hopefully the next book coming out sometime soon. Well, I really appreciate it, and it's always good to talk to you guys as well. I want to thank author Michael Hugh again for joining us on Manzi and Miller on Sports. Richard, I mean, uh, we could have gone forever, it feels like, with him. He was he was so fascinating when we went and saw him initially uh, back at the end of August at his 
author meet and greet at the Barnes and Noble at the town center. And it was kind of right then and there that we knew hey, we got to try and get this guy on. And, and luckily it worked out. Yeah. Uh, Scott, you and I talked about it that because of all the changes at 1010 XL, like, could you imagine this guy on local sports talk radio? Now his resume is to the point where there's no need for him to be on local no. sports talk radio. You like, got to do whatever you want. Yeah. He, he's an agent. He can do marketing, whatever he can. I, I think, he should do a podcast of some kind. I think it'd be extremely popular, not just in the Jacksonville market, but he's somebody that's gone to the top. He's done a variety of things. And I love when he talks about his family of like, oh, wow, this is important. It took a, a picture that his child, his son drew yeah. to say, oh, I need to be home more. Which is incredible. But, uh, you know, it's... It's one of those things, I mean, I know that I, I grew up in a household in which my dad traveled a lot for work. There were times in which he got he would get transferred to a different store, and like there was a period of time in which we were living in one city, and he was living in another city, and we only saw him on weekends, and like that that's tough, and it, it impacts you as a kid growing up when you're like, I just want to be, you know, I want to I want to be with dad. I want to experience these things uh, with any parental figure like it, you know, it doesn't matter it could be mom's the breadwinner and if she's gone the same way the same time it, it's going to have an impact on you and I think it's I mean I'm glad for him that he came to that realization before it was too late I mean what's it the the cats in the cradle the the Harry Chapin song yeah, where yeah. You know, by the time he realizes that he should spend some time with his kid it's too late uh he the kids turned out just like him you know you, you don't want to you don't want to do that but it's it is true I mean Richard we work in Right, we work in industries in which hours are weird, and and you're kind of all over the place. And you've got a kid now. I mean, how, how do you find the balance? Fortunately, I've got a great wife, yeah. so she does a lot of the shopping, and she knows Amazon well and what Henry needs. For me, I'm like, well, sometimes I'll get a Monday off because almost every work weekend, same as you, yeah. that you may get a Sunday to go to a Jaguars game, but. You have just a random weekday off, and you're like, well, I'm going to watch a movie. Like yesterday, I just needed some time by myself, slept much, got them out of the house, slept another like two, three hours, watched a Redbox movie, A Quiet Place, which is Good. phenomenal okay. and scary. All right. Um, making a note. You, you need to watch it during the day because if you're like me, I would not sleep well. But I've, I've got a, a phenomenal partner. I've it just changes when you come home there's just it's like having six dogs and you know it's christmas every day <laughs> uh we put together one of those play school cabin houses mm -hmm. for him my mom got it for his birthday so that's just like oh it's something he'll always enjoy and i'll even crawl in there and get it but you've got to make time for just the chores the errands the yard work the you know keeping up with your neighbors and I mean, right now I've got two jobs. We had DJ Chark come in the store, and I had to kind of help manage that and make sure he got everything signed and done properly, did a podcast with him. It's, you know, you know it because you're in that sports information director role. You're on the overseeing ESPN. You're also the broadcaster. The hats that you have to wear, and, and that's what Michael went over. Lawyer, GM, oh, dude, I've got to fire somebody today. We're at a time where you have to do a lot more than just what your title is. It's a challenge, but man, I, if you can have kids and have a great partner, it's it's 
life-changing. It's on the list, and one day I hope to be uh, able to not get lost, right? I, I, my, my job is very important. My career is very important, but at the same time, you, you have to find you have to find time for for family and and that's what's most important and you know it's a, on a smaller scale but I try to find time like you said for for myself a little bit to stay not completely overcome by my work and then also you know fortunate enough to live in the same town as as family and and while it's immediate family and brother sister mom dad I'm still able to take time out of my schedule to see them and and understand that it, it, you can't take it for granted. Yeah, it, it's just simple things of if I can find time to surf or go see my grandmother. Yeah. Uh, she's been in kind of a retirement assisted living home for maybe 12, 13 years and no longer with my dad around. It's kind of my mom, my uncle, me. We all kind of check in on her. I'll make sure she can FaceTime with people. I'll check in with my mom's parents and something as simple as you know, going out to lunch with my grandfather on his birthday. Yeah. Which I could finagle by moving a few things around. It's like, oh, man, of course, I got treated to Columbia. But I couldn't do that <laughs> well if, done. say, you know, if you took a job in Cincinnati, you know, you, you can't see your mom right. once, twice a week like you right. do. It just – so that's that's why I, I have this inner struggle of, yeah, you know, I'd love a job in a big market. That'd be fun. But maybe if I'm a lifelong bachelor – like that's right. not what I want to be known for. I think the other big thing that he hits on is, and it's when he talked about the Kaepernick chapter, and that's how the book's opened. And he said, "I wanted to write it because not only is it timely, not only is it is it uh, you know effective because it's something that is present in people's mind now." And of course, this week kind of rearing up again with Eric Reed getting signed by the uh, the uh, Carolina Panthers. But he said he kind of wanted to. to make you uncomfortable and I'll be honest yeah it, it was it was somewhat uncomfortable you, you read it and you're like okay this is the inner struggle that I personally as a white male who you know is not persecuted because we find we've just had advantages that no other demographic has ever had uh, it's hard to sit there and put yourself in the mind's eye of what a different demographic of people is experiencing because we've just never had to do that. So a book like this helps to understand it a little bit. I don't think we're ever going to understand it completely because we're just, we're not female or we're not, we're not a uh, minority or anything like that. But it's, I just feel that it's so important to at least attempt to learn more and more about how the other side is treated, how the other side sees life, because it's, it's not fair for you to sit there and be like, Oh, you don't see it that way because you're not on that side to, to sit there and comment on how the other side sees it. And it was even fascinating that Michael Hugh, he started off talking about Colin Kaepernick, National Anthem, and the kneeling, and he had the opinion of, like, really? You, you could be doing anything else. You've got to do it for this? Yeah. Like, why aren't you uh, talking about your charity or, you know, other things instead of kneeling at that moment? And so he had... The opinion, but once he started writing, it changed. And you're you're right. It was I probably put the book down three times in the first couple days, going through the first 45, 30 pages of like, oh, this is 
kind of uncomfortable. Like, am mm. I ready? For, I'm ready for like the Jaguars, Tom yeah, yeah. Coughlin stories, <laughs> Andre Risen, things like that. I wasn't ready for this, and for his opinion to change like that as he wrote about it, as he thought about it, kind of went inside and said, "Oh man, like that could be me out there." That that was tremendous. And I, I told him today when I saw him at our our Rotary luncheon that. I mean, this is truly a, a work of art. And reading it, just, oh, man, you get a lot of information. And then I'm excited if he comes out with that first book of here's the main football side of things because mm-hmm. you still get quite a bit of football. Yeah, you do. And, and probably, I mean, I went and picked up the copy of the book. You and I got a copy the same night. And you look at the cover, and it's it's Michael, and it's – TIA Bankfield in the background and the title is about you know football related and you're sitting there going oh, this is gonna be great we're just gonna hear all sorts of stories and then you jump right into the the racial component which is really what the book is strongly about and you go okay this is a little bit different than I anticipated at first and then like you said at first you're you're sitting there going okay am I ready to work my way through this but I think the the key thing is how he doesn't just say things, he explains them. And and as crazy as it sounds, it's like we need explanation. Like I, as a, as a white man, need explanation into why the black man is feeling the way he is. Like I, you can't just tell me I need, I need it to be explained because I don't get it, you know? So it, he does a great job of elaborating the feelings that he had, whether he was a young executive inside the NFL or whether he was – uh, feeling awkward out with his wife for dinner in in Avondale or any point in time in between there, he explains it from his point of view so thoroughly that it's like, okay, now I, I'm getting this. This makes so much more sense now. And this is, it feels like it's only something that is going to help in understanding things from here on out, hopefully. I, I think that's one of the, the cooler things about working in sports Football, basketball, you, you really get a sense of different backgrounds and cultures, and you, know, you get to interact with like Ramella Banks or Bebe Daniels. Hear these stories of, wow, like you're not like me, but we right. like the same stuff. And hearing about how they grew up in Central Florida or Georgia, and to me, those are some of my favorite interactions or deeper discussions of like how does baby daniels become best friends with bo beach like this <laughs> right, right you know you guys would not be friends in any other setting really but a sport brought you together and now you're probably going to be a best man at his wedding and vice versa and and that's what i love and i think michael kind of touched on that and i'm glad he brought up some deeper discussions right use use the common denominator to come together but then also use that to go deeper and, and, and understand things, not just be surface friends, but, but really understand where the other one is coming from. I mean, it should be that way regardless of, you know, whoever you're, you're getting to know better, you know, race, gender, anything like that. I mean, even just me and you, like uh, the opportunity to get to know each other better and deeper and stuff over, over the course of the years has been, been huge. We wouldn't be able to do this the way we are now if not even f- – three and a half years ago or so when we first started this. And that just should be a kind of a rule of thumb for all relationships. Yeah. And as we go forward, it's like, oh, dude, I used to do that too when I grew up. And there are a lot of similarities. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Well, this was this was a fun one, Richard. I mean, uh, we want to thank Michael Hugh again for being our guest. We got some we got some fun guests. I, ho- I hope you all will enjoy lined up. I mean, we got another major author that we're working on getting on the program. We've got some some local people that have reached out to us over the last couple of weeks based off of our recent topics and had uh, had some thoughts and want to join join us to to discuss things deeper so look for us to have uh, some more guests as we go forward I know we had a bunch kind of early on in the podcast and then we transferred from live to, to recorded and and uh, it, w- it was a little more difficult at that point but yeah we're we're getting back into the kind of the guest swing of things and uh, we encourage you to go back and listen to some of our older shows, too, some of the ones that have been popular as of late, uh, the one episode where we talked about T-Wig leaving 1010XL, our most listened to episode ever, uh, the episode where we talked about the relationship between the media uh, that covers the Jaguars and the Jaguars. Um, we uh, we talked about 930 and some of the changes they've made to their programming as of late and, and plenty more. And uh, we thank you for joining along in this journey with us, and we look forward to, to next week and what's coming up for it. Yeah, yeah, some great guests, and always one of the better hours of my week, Scott. Oh, yeah. This has been Manzi and Miller on sports. If you enjoyed that episode of Manzi and Miller on sports, there's more where that came from. You can listen to any of our old episodes if you subscribe. You can also rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, the all-new Google Podcasts app, and the original home, SoundCloud. Just search Manzi and Miller on sports. And make sure, Scott, all of our listeners can keep up on Facebook, where we've got our Facebook page of Manzi and Miller on sports, all the podcast news that you can find every single week. And then on Twitter for Scott, it's at Scott Manzi, last name M-A-N-Z-E. And for myself, Richard Miller, that's on Twitter, at Miller on Sports. This has been Manzi. And Miller on Sports. <laughs>